0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: It still hurt. It was like my eyelid. It was about 20 kilometres
2: to weave our homestead. And it was terrorising the chooks. And she ripped the bag of cake out of my hand. And held on tightly. <laughs> Not attacking, but really tormenting. You always frightened the living out here.
3: Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Off Track where we get to laugh at the collective misfortune that we have as we try to do the right thing by nature.
2: He launched himself directly at me and springboarded off my face and onto the next tree.
3: Case in point. These have been called Fieldwork Fails. We are out there in the great outdoors and an owl craps on you. Fieldwork Fowls is actually a hashtag started by Anne Hilborn and others on Twitter. She's an ecologist who spent years in Africa, tracking large carnivores, big cats across the savannas.
1: I did get stuck when I hit warthog and aardvark holes. And most of the time you bounce through, but sometimes they're so big that your whole tire disappears into it. Then you have to dig yourself out. You're out there on your own. And also the thing about being in your car all the time is you lose muscles. Quite quickly, and then suddenly you need to do a lot of physical. Like jacking up a car is hard, and like moving spare tires around are heavy. And then I would become tired really quickly. So I could do like you know half an hour of like trying to dig myself out, and then, and then I'd be done. You know, <laughs> so you could you could watch your own like desperation and muscle fitness sort of decrease, and then you're still stuck, and it's like ah
3: no scientist was harmed in the making of this program and also more stories about getting bogged in just a little
1: bit. Hi Dr. Anne Jones, Christina Zdenik here. This is a story from over 10 years ago when I went down to an island called Kanaun Island to help a mate of mine named Julia research some sea lions and the effect of tourist boats approaching the island. So this island is not populated by any humans. You have to get approval to go there. And it was... Very cold, it's south of Victoria, you know, it's always windy. There's shearwaters all over the place and there are burrows. And uh, there was just the three of us, and we had to set up camp, restrict our water, limited food, etc. And we had about two and a half weeks of field work of collecting data every day. Each night, when we were sleeping in the tent, we would get a visit from an Antichinus, so a little small marsupial same sort of jaw structure as uh, thylacine um, or quoll so we really wanted to get rid of this uh, this little rodent and by get rid of I mean like relocate it because it kept visiting us every night and disturbing our sleep so we wake up of course you know more exhausted and still needing to trek around the island so we're like okay how are we gonna catch this you know we didn't want to harm it or anything and we didn't have any traps on board so that wasn't part of our research So each night when the antichinus arrived, started to rummage around trying to find some food. It would eventually wake one of us up and then before long all three of us were up, you know, head torches on, racing around this little tent like clowns trying to capture this little antichinus. And every which way we tried, innovating with various techniques, it still evaded us. It was just too quick, too smart. Next night, totally dark we're asleep and I start hearing it rummage around again I thought oh this time I'm gonna try a different technique I'm gonna stay really still maybe it's it'll come close enough to me and I could just grab it maybe before I know it it actually jumps on my sleeping bag and actually rather than grabbing it I was just all of a sudden taken back thinking wow a wild antiquinus is actually walking on top of me this is just too cool So it starts like hopping around and sniffing and I'm just like lapping this up thinking what a wonderful wildlife experience, right? And then it starts moving toward my head and it's walking on my neck, which is exposed and its little feet touching my skin. And I I just thought this is just absolutely delightful. All my anger toward this little critter for stealing my sleep several nights in a row just totally went out the window and I was just like in love with this little creature and this experience i was having with it then it hops on my face it starts walking around and i'm just getting tickled by it and so i'm having to like withhold the giggles because i don't want to like scare it right i just want to see what it does and then it walks toward my eye and i've got my eyelids closed and it starts licking my eyelid and i was like no way this is hilarious and it was a little bit tickly as well and then before i know it only after a couple of licks it just gives an almighty chomp on my eyelid and i just jump up and think whoa no that is not okay and this little anticonus kind of goes flying and runs away i was like did it break skin it didn't break any skin but man it it still hurt and it was like my eyelid like i guess it thought maybe i was dead and it was just going for some juicy eyeball there but um yeah never would have thought that i'd get chomped on the eyelid by an antichinus but there you go beware of a little antichinus because they might go for your eyeball
3: I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Antichinus have to be the most vicious of all Australian animals. They seem to take no heed in the fact that they're smaller than almost everyone else. But even your friendly neighbourhood possum can turn bad.
2: Hi everyone, my name's Nathan, and I'm a volunteer wildlife rescuer with the Bonarong Wildlife Rescue Service here in Tasmania. I've been rescuing for about 10 months and in that time I've rescued over 100 animals. My job as a rescuer is to catch a sick, injured or trapped animals and transport them to the care that they need. The animals I deal with are almost always unwell or in pain and are always terrified, which makes them aggressive and unpredictable. Let's start with the gnawing. It was about 6 o'clock on a gloomy spring evening when I arrived at the house in Richmond an injured brush-tailed possum had taken up residence in a chicken coop, and it was terrorising the chooks. brush possums are known for being very aggressive, so I put on a pair of heavy welding gloves and opened the lid of the nesting area where the possum was hiding. Now this was a small A-frame chicken coop with a ramp in between the two nesting boxes, and when I grabbed the possum, he latched his paws around the sides of the ramp. I struggled to maintain my grip on his tail while trying to pull him out, and so rather stupidly I reached my hand underneath him and tried to unhook his paws. He took the opportunity to sink his teeth into my finger, and despite the wording gloves I was wearing, he managed to bite hard enough that I bled freely. There was no way I could remove his teeth from my finger, so I just had to work my hand out of the glove and drop the possum into my crate, glove and all. I reckoned that without my glove I'd probably have lost my finger. The next story, the springboard, took place in Taruna. It was a gorgeous sunny afternoon when I was called to rescue a ringtail possum with a very swollen leg. I arrived to find him high in a tree by the fence of the property. Now we rescuers are not allowed to climb trees, because a our insurance won't cover us if we fall out, and b it's extremely difficult to climb back down with an angry possum in your hand. Because of this, we've developed a couple of techniques to encourage the possum to climb back down the tree the most common being a plastic bag tied to a pole that you rattle around. So we rattled the bag and the possum climbed down as we planned. Moved to grab him, but what I didn't take into account was that there was another tree immediately behind me. The possum, however, did plan for this. In an impressive feat of parkour, he launched himself directly at me and springboarded off my face and onto the next tree. Luckily for me, only my pride was injured, and I was able to quickly capture the possum from his new tree and deliver him to the vet. I can safely say that I never again want a possum's claws that close to my eyes.
3: And even when you don't get to hold an animal in your hands, unpredictable animal behaviour is still at the base of many weird adventures in the field. So let's head northwest over to WA and hear one of Ewan Noakes's excellent field stories.
0: Yeah, my name's Ewan Noakes, I've been a ranger coordinator for the last eight years, I live in the Kimberley in WA, so it was 2013, I was the ranger coordinator for the Guniandi Rangers based out of Fitzroy Crossing, and we were conducting the biodiversity survey at Mandua, which is Margaret Gorge, north-west of Fitzroy, um, on the Margaret River so it was me five rangers went out to do a biodiversity survey in an area where there hadn't been one done i don't think ever we put out 20 camera traps one of the camera traps we set right close to the river we put a barramundi carcass in front of it and was hoping to get footage of a freshwater crocodile come up we put the cameras out on the first day we set up all the trapping lines we continued the survey, and on the last day we went to collect all the cameras and we could find 19 cameras and we were missing one camera. And we thought, oh, this, you know, it was the camera that we set up for the crocodile and we thought it had fallen into the water. We looked high and low for this thing, and it was just gone. It was like, ah, oh, it's gone, you know, we've just lost the camera, that's fine. And then we just went back to our normal lives, thought nothing of it. And about, oh, it would have been six months later, I got a call from my friend who was in Warman, Turkey Creek, about 400 k's east of Fitzroy Crossing. He was a ranger coordinator there for the Gidgee Rangers, and he said oh, I just had a guy come into the office and hand me a camera truck. And on all our camera trucks, we had asset stickers, so it would say property of Gunny Andy Rangers. And he's like, I've looked at the at the footage. And there's a video of a sea eagle picking the camera up, flying it across the gorge and then pecking it. It was definitely a young bird and I think it was really curious. Picked it up, flew it across the gorge, probably like 50 metres, and then put put it down and started pecking at the lens. And then from there it flew it 90 kilometres as the crow flies from the Margaret Gorge to Mary River, sort of a couple of oh, 100 k's out of Hall's Creek.
3: Did you ever find out if there were crocs?
0: Yeah, so we did on that survey, so we were using twenty litre buckets as the pitfall traps and you get the lid for the buckets. We had we had a bucket lid fall into the water and float across the gorge. So me and another ranger we swam across the gorge to get the lid back and then we swam back. That night we went down there and counted about seventy eight freshwater crocodiles. <laughs> Just counting their little red eyes in the water. (laughs) Yeah, we were swimming really fast.
3: And now, a cautionary tale, not about camera traps and wayward teenage eagles, but about getting university vehicles bogged on the first field trip of your PhD.
4: Hello, Anne and the Off Track team. My name is Robin Leppert and I'm a PhD candidate at Charles Darwin University. I'm studying a bird called the Alligator River's yellow chat, which is a subspecies of yellow chat that lives on these really big, vast floodplains we have up here in the top end, mostly in Kakadu National Park. I want to tell you the story about a field trip I had. It was the very first field trip that I went on um, as part of my PhD. On these field trips, my goal was to to drive out onto these floodplains where the chats live using an ATV. It's like a four-wheel drive golf buggy. So we'd um, go and camp on the edge of the floodplain, and then drive this golf buggy out there looking for birds. That was my plan in this very first field trip. It was supposed to be three nights at the um, on Adelaide River floodplain. Yeah, I was really excited to get started, even though it was very hot, very sweaty. Um, so myself and a fieldwork volunteer started collecting data, and, and the first day went great. But one thing you have to remember is that at the end of each day of fieldwork, you have to check in with the university using a satellite phone. The satellite phone they gave us was a little bit outdated. It was an older model and it was a bit clunky, but it seemed to, to work okay. Anyway, that, that night after the first day of field work, I text messaged the university using the sat phone to say, I'm okay, everything's fine, field work's good, I'll talk to you tomorrow. And then I went to bed and didn't think much more of it. The next day, we were back out in the floodplains in the ATV, still looking for chats. We we're out of phone reception, but we did manage to come close to a small town called Humpty Doo at which point my phone did get reception and immediately it started ringing. This is probably in the afternoon, so maybe 2 or 3 o'clock. Picked up my phone and, sure enough, it was a police officer and he was saying, Is this Robin Leppert and are you okay?" And I was saying, I'm fine, I'm fine. And he he just repeated himself. He said, Is this Robin Leppert? Are you safe? And I was like, I'm fine. Everything's okay. I'm fine. He obviously couldn't hear me replying, but he did say... If you have the capability, please hang up and text the phone number that I'm calling you from to tell us that you're okay. So I hung up the phone, I sent him a message saying, I'm fine, and he messaged back to say, great, we've got your message, that's all okay." I then got my sat phone out to call university and they'd said that they hadn't heard anything from me since I left from the field trip and had been obliged to sort of escalate the situation to calling the police. I'd actually been missing so long at that point it was past 12 hours that the police had had a helicopter ready to come and get me I got quite the dressing down the woman at university who took the check-ins and learned some valuable lessons about sat phone capability and the fact that that sat phone actually didn't have the capability to send text messages I needed to ring up anyway, all things that I learnt on that first day unfortunately, that is not where my troubles ended on this field trip things got significantly worse I would say so the following day, we head out on the floodplains again, once again in our, in our little golf buggy. We are way out on the floodplain. Probably, you know, these floodplains are enormous. i got to paint a picture. They're like these tidal rivers. And in the wet season, we get up to 1,500, 2,000 mil of rain. And these huge floodplains get completely inundated with water. When I'm there in the late dry season, I wait till they dry out. There's still patches of bogginess. There's all kinds of animals out there, a lot of wild pigs, horses, buffalo, even crocodiles. They're pretty wild places and on this day we're way out on the Adelaide River floodplain and we're driving along next to this little creek which is an offshoot of the main river the Adelaide River which is absolutely jam-packed with crocodiles but we're just off this little creek driving along beside it all of a sudden a little golf buggy just slowed quickly and then came to a quite sudden stop and of course we are bogged up to the axles in infamous black soil that you get on these floodplains. It just has this amazing suction capacity. It's completely soft and it's very hard to get out of it once you get in. Now this golf buggy had some recovery equipment. It had a winch, but a winch is pretty useless when there's not a tree for, probably the nearest tree is probably four kilometers away. Like that's, we're on a huge grassy plain, And so after three hours of digging, trying to get this thing out, we realized that the whole bash plate underneath this vehicle was basically sitting flat on this mud. It wasn't budging—not even a centimeter. So we get out this sat phone again, and we have to call that that woman at university again. And I say, "You yeah, know, well, look, we've gotten stuck. We're out on a FOD plane. Can you send someone to get us?" And she says, "You yeah, know, sure. Where are you?" And I was like, "Ah, uh, well, I'm on the Adelaide River floodplain. Here's my GPS coordinates. Um, it's a bit of a way out to get us. It probably took us, a you know, half a day to get here." So it was at this point, I realised that the sat phone, which I'd charged overnight, It was saying, at least saying, that it had no battery. It was on zero, like it was on 5% or something like that. So I realized that, you know, if we were gonna be stuck here for a while, it was pretty important that we had sat phone capability. I needed to turn the sat phone off to preserve its battery. What that meant was that the university couldn't call me. I could only switch the, the sat phone on to call them, which made things a little more tricky, I guess. We probably got bogged about lunchtime. By the time we rang them, it was probably 2 or 3 p.m. So pretty quickly, you know it gets dark up here about six thirty that time of year and by six o'clock the sun's getting pretty low and i thought i'll turn the sat phone on just see how they're going in terms of finding us i spoke to the woman at union she said look they're trying to find you they're out of the adelaide river floodplain but they're having some problems and she said you know are you guys okay if you have to can you spend the night out on the floodplain with the atv and i said you know that should be fine we've got about 10 liters of water for the two of us we've got a packet of muesli bars, um, and so yeah, we should be okay. And she said, great, like they're gonna do their best, but if they can't get to you by you know nightfall, it's too dangerous for them to come and find you. And I agreed with her, so. So we sort of held out some hope, but sure enough, night came, and um, and no one arrived. And then it got dark. And we were sitting down on the floodplain, it was dark, The mosquitoes had just come down and we were feeling pretty grim about the whole thing. And and we saw these these headlights across the plane like way over on the on the tree line and we were like oh my god maybe they are maybe they're coming to get us like this is a bit crazy to come at night but they didn't seem that far away anyway these headlights hung around for quite a long time we were watching them but i didn't really seem to be getting any closer we started to think maybe they were like you know hunting pigs or maybe it was just someone else doing something weird out on the floodplain. And eventually the this, this second set of headlights arrived and then they sort of met up with the first headlights and then both of the headlights disappeared off onto the highway. That was actually a rescue party that was attempting to get to us. And um, they tried to drive out of the floodplain in a land cruiser and almost immediately got bogged and like gotten really bogged. So they got stuck and then they had to call someone else to, to drive out another four-wheel drive from uni to come and pull them out. And then they both had to drive back to, to Darwin. You gotta remember we camped by this tiny little stagnant creek and when night fell whilst we hadn't had a mosquito all day um not a, not a single one um the second that the the sun touched the horizon like you know there was one mosquito then two and then before you knew it it was like nothing i'd ever experienced they descended like it's you know you can hear a mosquito and that's annoying you know you hear one mosquito this was just like this constant hum it, like the silence was broken by just this absolute swarm of mosquitoes we didn't have any mosquito repellent we didn't have a tent or any kind of shelter so we just had to sit out on the floodplains. plans at first we tried to swat the mosquitoes away but it just became like it didn't it didn't matter like there was no reason to swat there was, there was just too many of them my volunteer, she grabbed all of this dry grass that was around us on the floodplain. She made it into this big pile, like a big nest, and then she, like, crawled in underneath it to try and, like, shield herself from mosquitoes. It didn't work. Mosquitoes got in. We lit a little fire with some, like, dead branches. We had one camp chair, and while she was in this nest, I sat in the camp chair basically on top of the fire with, like, the smoke billowing up around me, and that didn't work either. Uh, we both got absolutely destroyed by mosquitoes. We heard, like feral pigs pretty close to us in the night that night as well like making some pretty loud noises nearby um so yeah it was it wasn't a restful night but morning came we had this stunning sunrise over the floodplain and with the sunrise came new hope of possibly getting off this floodplain at some point and again we waited i didn't call the uni i didn't want to turn the sat phone on to, to waste battery because i knew they'd be coming to get us So we we sat there and we waited and we played some games, like 20 questions and stuff. And sometimes we just sat in silence. I mean, these these flood lanes are actually really remarkable because there's just nothing out there. And when there's no wind, like there often isn't in the morning in particular, it's just, it's completely silent. It's a silence unlike I've experienced anywhere else, I think, it's so quiet out there. Anyway, by about 11 AM or something, which is four hours after sunrise. I was getting a bit restless and obviously hadn't heard from them. They hadn't heard from us. So I was like, you know what? We need to find out what's going on. Switched the sat phone on. I called the union. They say, yep, look, they're out there. They've been out there trying to find you. They've made one attempt to get to you. They got lost. Now they're they're going to make another attempt and they're going to try and follow your tracks out to you this time. And I hung like, up the phone and, and we waited some more. We ate our muesli bars and, um, um, and we had about maybe two liters of water left so it was, it was starting to dwindle a bit and it was getting serious getting more serious I guess more anxiety inducing to to be stuck in it's got it's getting extremely hot as well so we're now getting into the middle of the day on the fog planes, there's no shade it's probably high 30s and the humidity in the top end obviously always a big problem so we're sweating and um, yeah it's getting it's getting pretty crap to be honest I anyway, know a few more hours go past maybe it's one o'clock now and I, I ring back and I'm like what's going on we need to get out of here like the water's gone. We've eaten the last muesli bath. Where are you? And she was like, look, they should be close now. Like, they reckon that they're approaching your coordinates. It's just taking a long time because they don't want to get bogged either. And I was like, OK. And, and she was like, look, don't worry. If they can't find you, we won't leave you out there. We have contacted a rescue helicopter. They will come and, and fly you out if we can't find you. You're not going to spend another night out there. And that was obviously reassuring. And luckily, my volunteer... She was, um, she was made a tough stuff. She, she was more level-headed about the whole thing than I was. I think I felt a whole, all, all this guilt about it. She just seemed to think it was this sort of fun adventure. Maybe another hour or two goes past. I think we hit about the 24-hour mark of being out there. We were pretty fed up at this point. And then, um, sure enough, I have my binoculars, obviously, because I'm looking for birds, I'm scanning the floodplains, and finally I see two quad bikes coming straight towards us. Finally, they get to us. They've got two quad bikes and they've got another one of these golf buggies, which is the university. We have two of them. And the other golf buggy pulls up and sure enough, out of the golf buggy jumps like our tech guy, who's like, you know, responsible for running all the vehicles and the fleets and stuff. He wants to check out the vehicle. And out of the other seat jumps the head of school. And she's in like a fresh, like never worn khakis with like the university logo. She jumps out with a packet of sweet biscuits and she's like, oh, I just couldn't not come like... We've all been worried about you. Like, apparently the whole school knew about it. And anyway, these two quad bikes, they use snatch straps, these big long ropes to sort of get the the buggy out. And somewhat to my satisfaction, I guess, it was very difficult to get the buggy unstuck. I felt a bit vindicated in in calling for help. Like, I couldn't have just dug more to get it out. Anyway, we got off a FUD plan and, yeah... Got back to Darwin later that day, and I remember lying in bed that night, and I counted the mosquito bites on my back—the ones that were still there anyway—and um, I think I had about, I don't know, upwards of 300, maybe 400 bites, just on my back. It was nuts. I think that's pretty much it. Uh, terrible experience. Have loved working on the flood bones I've finished my fieldwork now. I ended up finding some chats, not for another about two months after that had to look on a lot of different fog bones before I found them. But, yeah, eventually I got some data on them and I'm um, hoping to submit my PhD later this year.
3: Remember, if you've got an adventure story in the wilds where it all went wrong or right, send us an email here at OffTrack, offtrack at abc.net.au. I'm Ann Jones and remember, meet me here at the same time next time. Remember the first aid kit, please, because that's when I'll take you somewhere else.